Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, we thank you that uh, your word never grows tired, that your word never loses its power. And Lord, even though we may be very familiar with it, it's a text that we've probably read hundreds of times, but Lord, we thank you that today it comes to us fresh. Today, Lord God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make this word bear fruit in our lives. And so, Lord God, we just pray for that hunger inside of us today, Lord, to come to your word with expectancy, to come to your word with hunger, to come to your word like hungry children, ready for food. And Lord, we pray that we would have humility as we come before this word, that also, I really pray that today, our assurance of salvation, our assurance that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness would be strengthened. And I pray this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The writer to the Hebrews, nobody likes to put a foot out there and say who that might be, but the writer to the Hebrews was writing to Jewish Christians. He was writing to converts from Judaism to the Christian faith. And in the book of Hebrews... There are around five chapters, there or thereabouts, that the writer of Hebrews spends persuading these Jewish converts that they have a high priest. That they have a high priest and that their high priest has a name, is Jesus Christ. Five chapters out of the whole book of Hebrews is devoted to this one thing persuading, convincing them, and encouraging them that, yes, you do have a high priest. Why was that something that needed to be said? Why spend roughly a third of the whole letter speaking to them about this one issue of the high priest? Because I I don't think we really, in the 21st century, we, we don't really understand how vital having a high priest is. We we don't really think about that idea of the need for a high priest for the church. And of course today, if you hadn't already clocked on, we are in our series on Church Unpacked. We're talking about today the Church of Jesus Christ. And in the 21st century here in the West, most of us here were not raised in the Jewish religion. I don't think any of us were. And certainly none of us were raised in the Jewish religion that Christ was raised in, where there was a temple and there were priests and there was a high priest. And so this idea of a high priest and our need for a high priest is something that is kind of alien to us. It's not a familiar concept. But to a first century Jewish convert or even to a first century Jew, the high priest was absolutely central. Central to their worship of God. It was central to their faith. It was essential to maintaining their relationship with God. To a Jew in the first century or before, 
The idea of having a relationship with Yahweh, but not having a high priest, would have been totally alien. Totally alien. And as they have come out of Judaism, these Hebrew believers, they would have been concerned. They would have been concerned. How on earth can we truly be God's people? How can we truly be saved? How can we have any assurance that our relationship with God is not going to falter if we have no high priest? Because in the Old Testament, the primary purpose of the high priest was to serve as a representative, as a representative and a mediator. You say mediator. Mediator. To serve as a representative and a mediator between the people and God. Now maybe in the UK here, we're not familiar with the idea of a, a high priest, but we are familiar with the idea of a mediator. I think we are, even though it's not usually what we would call them. Let me use an example. I've had car trouble. I've had bad car trouble for like the last month. I got back from a conference and took one of the girls to a club out in Codsell on a Thursday evening and came out from the club after dropping her off, went to start the car, Nothing. One of those where you put the key in the ignition and not even a click. And so I had to have the car collected. Um, it went into the garage. I decided to have an MOT done as well. And the car failed its MOT, not just on the fact it hadn't started, but on some other fault with a headlight, which we thought, oh, that shouldn't be a problem. We'll, you know, we just need to buy a few bulbs, put the bulbs in there, that'll fix it. Nope. The headlight blew out the new bulbs as well. And so I took it to about three garages, and two of these garages said, look, you know, we don't fix this kind of electrical fault here. You need an electronics specialist. You need a specialist, somebody with expert knowledge in the field if you want to fix your car. So they gave me a contact, and I took it out to this garage, and after much searching for a, a headlight on eBay, praise the Lord, I managed to find one cost me an arm and a leg, but we got that headlight. You wouldn't believe how expensive these things are. Goodness me. Insane. But bought this headlight, took it out to the garage. And this garage, this car mechanic out at that electronic specialist garage, he became, in a sense, a mediator for me. He became a mediator for me. There was no way I could fix my own car. I had to place my trust in this mechanic for him to fix the car for me. My trust at that point is my confidence in my car getting fixed is transferred from me onto him. At that point, when I hand him over the keys, I please fix my car for me. I'm then not going away worrying about how can I fix the car, am I? I've left it in his hands. He's got expert knowledge in the field. It's in his hands. He's my mediator, in a sense. It's not a perfect analogy, but you can see where I'm going with it. You, you all, when you're unwell... You go and see who? You go and see a doctor. Some of you have had surgery. You know, when you go under the anesthetic, you're not, you're not worrying about how you're going to fix your body. You've, you've given over confidence to that surgeon in order to do 
the right job. And in a sense, that is a kind of mediatorial relationship. And that's kind of similar, in a sense, to how the Jews saw the high priest. There was a trust and a confidence that they gave to the high priest in order to mediate between them and God. The role of the high priest was to ensure that the people remained in a covenant relationship with God. So let's learn a bit more, shall we, about what the role of a high priest was. Because this is really important. I hope we'll come out of today with real understanding and real assurance, I hope, about who Christ is for us. And that we'll have a greater understanding of his work for us. So the high priest, who was that? Well, in chapter 5, um, in chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us that the high priest was chosen. He was chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So the high priest is like an advocate. He's a representative who goes before God on behalf of of the people. The high priest didn't go before God on behalf of the whole world. He wasn't the high priest to the world. He was the high priest to the covenant people of Israel. That was his job. Secondly, he was chosen. You couldn't apply for the post of high priest. You couldn't fill in a purple jobs form to be the high priest each year. You couldn't run for election as high priest and say, look, everybody wants me to be the high priest. You couldn't do it because you had to be what? You had to be a Levite. You had to be a Levite. And not just a Levite even, if you wanted to be high priest, you actually had to be in the line of Aaron himself. So the office of high priest would pass from generation to generation to the eldest living son of Aaron's line. And the high priest would do many things. Perhaps the most important thing that the high priest did was as an intercessor. You say intercessor? As an intercessor for the people of Israel. As I say, he wasn't appointed to intercede for the whole world. He was appointed to intercede for the nation of Israel. Now, I think often when I think of intercession, I think of prayer. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking about an idea of of taking a burden for somebody to the Lord in prayer. And that is absolutely what intercession is. Yes, that's intercession, is when we have a burden for somebody. Maybe we're praying for a family member uh, to come to Christ. Or maybe we're praying for somebody to overcome a particular trial in their life or a, a sin that easily besets. That's when we carry a burden for someone. You can see, can't you, we're being an advocate. For somebody else, that's what intercession is. We're advocating for someone else before God the Father. So that is, in a sense, what intercession is. But the intercessory role of the high priest was more than that. It, It didn't just have to do with prayer. The intercessory role of the high priest was inextricably linked to and connected to his offering of sacrifices for the sins of the people. So it wasn't just prayer. It was linked to offering. The offering of sacrifices for the people on the Day of Atonement. How many of you have heard of the Day of Atonement before? 
You can read about that in Leviticus 16. I'm not going to go there now. It's a big study I'd love to do. But just to mention a few things about that day. It's called Yom Kippur in Hebrew. And it happened on the 10th day of the 7th month. The 10th day of the 7th month. If you're into numerology, those are two important numbers in the Bible. The 10th day of the 7th month each year, the Jews would observe the Day of Atonement. And on that day was the most important thing that a high priest would do all year. It was on that day, and that day alone, that he would enter into the tabernacle. And not just into the outer courts, but into what they called the very holy of holies. It was actually a very dangerous, a very perilous job. Because you could die. You've heard about the priestly robes they had to wear, and there was a bell. There were bells on the robes. Why? So that if he was inside the Holy of Holies and presenting sacrifices on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people, what could happen is the Lord could strike him down. If something displeased him, God is holy, brothers and sisters, isn't he? And there was a genuine danger on the life of the high priest that if his life or if the sacrifices that were being offered on behalf of himself or on behalf of the people were not pleasing to Yahweh, there was a genuine risk of death. And so if these bells stopped ringing, it was a bad sign. He had a rope attached to him. They'd drag him out. So this was a very serious responsibility that the high priest had. He would enter into the Holy of Holies. On that day, he would sacrifice a bull for his own sins and the sins of his family because he had sins to be dealt with. And also... He would sacrifice a goat, and he would, he would actually use a scapegoat. How many of you heard of a scapegoat? And this one goat would be sacrificed, and its blood would be spattered on the mercy seat. Inside the Holy of Holies, that would be for the people of Israel. And then this other goat would be sent out into the wilderness. Before he did that, he would lay his hands on the horns of the goat, and he would confess the sins of the whole nation of Israel. And at that point, they would be transferred to this goat, and the goat would go out into the wilderness. Done. Dealt with. The sins were atoned for, at one. That's where we get that word from, in a sense. We, we understand that the sins were at one on the goat, and the goat was sent away. It was dealt with. So that was the most important job that the high priest had. That's what the high priest did once a year. From Leviticus 16, 30 to 34, it says, for on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Atonement will be made for you, the people, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before Yahweh from all your sins. Does that sound good? You see, it's become taboo in many churches to even talk about sin. To talk about needing forgiveness. Well, we've done that. We want to move on to the fun things. But the idea of having sins dealt with is a thing that Christians will always need to think about. It's a thing that the Bible constantly turns our mind to. If we dispense with the idea of sacrifice for sins being a central part of what a Christian must believe, if we dispense with the idea of Jesus being a sacrifice, a blood 
offering for sins. If that falls out of our gospel proclamation, then our gospel proclamation isn't a Christian proclamation at all. Many Christians these days want to dispense with this idea of sins needing atonement. They want to talk about God's love? Yes. They want to talk about God's favor? Oh, yes. They want to talk about God having a wonderful plan for your life. And they leave the part about sin out. How many of you understand that's not a gospel proclamation? That isn't a message that can save you. That isn't a message that can bring forgiveness of sin for anybody. But our God is a holy God. In this same book it says our God is a consuming fire. And so as Christians, when we share the gospel, we mustn't leave out the one thing that can actually save people, which is the blood offering of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The high priest who's anointed is consecrated as priest in his father's place, and he shall make atonement. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you forever. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did this as Moses, uh, sorry, and Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, the ancient Israelites They couldn't just relate to God however they pleased. They they couldn't go to any high priest to get forgiveness of their sins. They had to go through God's ordained high priest. They couldn't just decide to set themselves up as a high priest and say, well, Jerusalem's a long way away. Um, I live here up in the north country and I just don't have time to travel down to Jerusalem. So I've got a few goats here. So I'm just going to sacrifice these goats, offer them up to the Lord for my sins and the sins of my family, and jobs are good. Bad things happened to people who did that in the Bible. Really bad things. You had to go through the high priest if you wanted any forgiveness of sins. Without a high priest... There could be no atonement for sin. You're seeing how vital this role is now. Without a high priest, according to God, there's no forgiveness of sin. The people would be in broken relationship with God. And so you can see why now these Hebrew believers who are being written to in Hebrews, you can see why they were feeling maybe a little bit anxious about leaving behind the temple and leaving behind the high priest. They've come away from it. How can we be in right relationship with God if we're not in right relationship with his chosen priest? You can see the anxiety that would have stirred up in them. They'd had, as a Jewish nation, 1,400 years since they came out of Egypt of dealing with God in this way, of having a high priest who would represent them before God, and now they've come away from that whole system. They're like how is this going to work for us? How can we have forgiveness of sin? And so the writer of Hebrews is revealing to them, you do have 
a high priest. You've got a high priest. You've got one. What's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, listen, all of that stuff, all of that about being, you know, needing a high priest, all of that's just religion. You know, you could just let that go. That's, that's Old Testament. That's just legalism. You don't need a high priest anymore. He doesn't say that, does he? But I think often here in the West in the 21st century, we have that kind of attitude towards the idea of needing a high priest. We're like, oh yeah, it's, it's Old Testament. It's all passed away. That's not how the apostles argued. They said, no, you need one. You've got one. Ian Hamilton, Scottish Presbyterian minister, said the Hebrew believers needed to be reassured. We have a high priest. Today's church needs to be reminded that they need a high priest. You can't be your own high priest. That's the opinion of the world. You know, today, the Jewish religion is utterly destroyed. and In reality, the temple is gone. The temple's destroyed. It's never been rebuilt, just like Jesus said. And you know why there's no priesthood? Because all the genealogical records of who descended from Aaron were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So there can never be an orthodox biblical priesthood again because they couldn't even find who Aaron's descendants are anyway. And so now, Jews across the world, they mark, they still mark the day of Yom Kippur. It's a day of fasting. It's a day of reverence and awe for Yahweh. But one thing that they dwell on is that they pray and hope that their good works will outweigh their bad works. But isn't that just, in a sense, like being your own high priest? Like going before God and and hoping that my good performance as a Christian is going to be all right with God. And I think that's why so many of us don't enjoy the full assurance that God has for us, is because in a sense we've gotten used to, we've we've forgotten about Jesus' role as high priest, and we're thinking that we are our own, in a sense, high priest, or that Jesus is bearing our works before the Father, saying, look, Graham's done a good week, he's been really good this week, you know, he's not been rude to anybody, he's not shouted at his kids, you know, God, you know, not as though God needs persuading um, to save his own people, I don't believe that Jesus' mediatorial role looks like that, but you know what I'm getting at, sometimes we think like that, we think that you know, Jesus is kind of pleading our performance before God and saying, listen, Graham's just been a really good guy this week. He's really obeyed your word. And so then we have a bad week. Well, how does that make us feel then? Maybe our relationship was faltered with God now because my works weren't so good this week and I don't necessarily feel as kind of saved and born again as I did last week. Why? Because I'm thinking that my relationship fluctuates based on my performance as a Christian because I've forgotten that I have a high priest I've forgotten that I could give him my trust to get the job done in presenting not my performance but his performance before the father on my behalf so I'd go as far as to say that without a high priest if we as the church of God in the 21st century if we don't have a high priest then we're not saved there is no salvation without a high priest And the church today, under the new covenant of grace, needs a high priest every bit as much as 
the church in the Old Testament needed a high priest. And according to the writer of Hebrews, we don't just have any high priest. We have a great high priest. We have a high priest who surpasses any of the Old Testament high priests. He's a better high priest. In fact, that word better, the writer of Hebrews uses that word better four or five times in these few chapters just to get across. Our high priest is not fallible like the old ones. He's infallible. He never fails. He never fails in doing a perfect job of representing us. Let me just run through a few things that the writer of Hebrews says about our high priest and why he's better. He's better because he offers a better sacrifice. He offers a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 12 to 14 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He offers a better sacrifice than any other high priest. Secondly, his offering on our behalf doesn't just deal with the guilt of our sins. It doesn't just deal with the guilt of the bad things that we've done, it goes further. It does something internally. Our great high priest, his offering of his sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat for you does more than just deal with your faults, with the bad things you've done. It actually has an effect internally in your life. That's what Hebrews 24 says. Sorry, Hebrews 9.14 says, it says his offering actually goes within us and purifies us. It purifies your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How many of you understand that if you live on this earth and you sin, let's say that you have a sin that easily besets, you've got an addiction, and you are captive to that addiction for all the years up until you're born again, How many of you understand that that repetitive action in your life is going to do something to your conscience? It's going to dull your conscience, isn't it? It's going to make you believe that that sinful act isn't actually that bad. It's going to affect the way that you think about morality. It's going to to pollute the way that you see other humans. It's going to pollute the way that you look at God's word. And what this says is that actually your high priest, by his offering for you, actually purifies your conscience. It's able to heal all the damage done internally by years of sin. How many of you would like to live with a pure conscience? Proverbs 28.1 says, the, the, you know, the righteous are bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one pursues. There's a boldness and a confidence that comes from having a purified conscience, isn't there? There's an integrity there. There's a peace there. 
And that's what our high priest can achieve for us. He can purify you and purify your conscience from all that you've done and sanctify you to serve God. Our high priest is greater because his sacrifice is once for all and no repetition is necessary. No repetition is necessary. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. There's no need for repeated sacrifices. There's no need for representation continually of that sacrifice. He's done the job once for all. Our high priest is greater because his offering is able to perfect us. Can you believe that? Your high priest, what he's offering before God on your behalf, is able to actually perfect you. That's Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Who are those who are being sanctified? Those who are being sanctified are those who have been justified, according to Romans 8. Those who are being justified are those who were called, according to Romans 8. Those who were called are those who were predestined to be called, according to Romans 8. Those who were predestined are who? They are those who were foreknown, according to Romans 8. Foreknown is a word that means what? It means actually not just a bare knowledge of facts. It means before loved. So the elect of God are perfected. This is why I can't believe that somebody who's truly born again, truly given a new heart, can never truly fall away. Because Christ perfects those who he is sanctifying. Our high priest is greater because he lives to make intercession for his people. It's his purpose. It's his joy. It's what he lives for now is to make intercession for his people. He's making intercession even now. He's bearing his own sacrifice before Yahweh. And I don't believe that Christ is begging the Father to save us because the Father's the one who elected us in the first place. But just simply by virtue of Christ being at his right hand with his nail-pierced hands. Do you know there's only going to be one imperfect body in the resurrection? There's only going to be one body, and I say imperfect, what I mean is there's only going to be one body in glory that has nail-pierced hands, that has a hole in the side. And that's Christ. His wounds, even in his resurrected body, are preserved for all time. None of you is going to have any scars when he returns and you receive your resurrection body, but he will. 
I believe, is an eternal reminder of his work in saving us. Isn't that wonderful? He makes intercession for us. It's his passion. It's his joy. And because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost. To save to the uttermost. No matter how much of a mess you've got into. Now, I do believe that a Christian can backslide. I don't believe that a full, born-again, spiritful believer can ever truly lose their salvation. But I do believe a Christian can actually backslide, can fall back into old sins that are easy to beset. And it can look really bad. But our hope that that Christian may return to their faith once again is not in their abilities, but it's in their high priest. It's in Christ who's able to save to the uttermost. That's why he's a better high priest. He's a better high priest as well because he sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with us. When we arrive, you imagine the Israelites coming towards Jerusalem with their sacrifices on that day. They've brought their sacrifices, their burnt offerings, and the high priest, or the priest rather, would meet them at the entrance to the tabernacle. Perhaps there would be, on that day, a sense of guilt a sense of shame, maybe. Maybe the high priest wouldn't be as sympathetic to these sinners that are greeting him with sacrifices, but the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.15 that Christ is not like that. Christ does not judge us when we arrive and confess our sins. Even when we've regrettably, on occasion, backslidden into sins that we once left. Even then, Hebrews 14 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, but he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest sympathizes with us, even when we mess up, even in our weaknesses, when we come to him and we confess our sins, there's a sympathy that comes from him. There's a kindness that comes to him from him. He deals gently with us, not harshly. That's why our high priest is great. That's why he's better. He deals gently with us when we come back to his fold. That's Hebrews 5.2. I think we have to think of the work of the high priest as really being a foundation for our assurance, really being a foundation for our hope. Just like when I took my car to the garage and handed over the keys. At that point, my confidence now was in that technician, in that mechanic to fix my car. Just now, I I hand over my life to Christ. Guess what? My confidence is not in me anymore to live up to the standards of God's word, although I know I need to do that, but my confidence is not in me, it's in him. I've handed the keys over of my life to him, and now my trust is in him, in, in God's chosen high priest, because he is God's chosen high priest there is no other high priest that you can go to now to get sins dealt with you can't go to Jerusalem to get forgiven you can't go to Mecca to be forgiven you must only go to God's high priest as one theologian said if God were talking about the 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 similarities between creation and providence do you know what providence is providence is like God's sustaining and ruling and governing all that he's created we've done this before in the Heidelberg By his providence, he upholds everything that he's created. The two are symbiotic. Without his providence, creation would fall. But the Bible tells us that he sustains it by the word of his power. 
And this theologian says that the relationship between God's providence and his creation is similar to Christ's intercession and our salvation. Let me read this to you from the Lexham Survey of Theology. If God were to withdraw the creative energy of his providence, creation itself would cease. Likewise, if Christ were not to make continual intercession on behalf of his people in the throne room of God, our sins would not be covered by the blood of his sacrifice. His intercession renders effective the remission of sins here and now. And there's three things to finish with that the writer of Hebrews tells us that we ought to now do in light of these facts. Firstly, therefore, based on what we've heard now about our high priest, therefore we must draw near to God in full assurance. That's Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My friend tells a story. He tells a story about two friends getting on a flight together. One of them is a nervous flyer. The other one is a very frequent flyer. And as they get to cruising altitude, the plane encounters turbulence. And the nervous flyer begins to shake and worry and is, is sort of giving furtive glances to the, to the, um, the staff. Is, this, is everything okay? Uh, are we going to go down? The palms are sweaty. They're really worried. The frequent flyer, headphones in, shades on, having a nap. Which one of them do you think failed to make it to the destination? Neither of them. They both made it to the destination. One worried the whole way, one was calm, but they both got there. Assurance won't save us, but it's available to us. And so we must draw near to God in full assurance, not in ourselves, because I think we often behave, as I've said earlier, like Jesus as our high priest brings our performance before God. You know, and there is a kind of this idea that we somehow acquire God's grace through our performance, isn't there? But that's actually works-based, isn't it? That's not grace. Jesus bears his own sacrifice, his work. Something that happened outside of you, something that happened to him, he bears his blood before the Father on your behalf. That's what should give us assurance. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm trusting in Jesus's. My salvation isn't in doubt, not because of me, but because of him. Second thing we're told to do is to hold fast. So we must draw near to God and we must hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Faithful. He is faithful. Our hope is to be in Christ Jesus, our high priest, without whom there is no salvation for us. We're to hold fast to him. Hold fast to him as being the source of our strength. Because guess what? The enemy is going to come and he's going to point out to you every day your failings. He's going to point out fact after fact after fact about why you couldn't possibly be saved. Look at the thought you just had. 
Look at that stinking attitude that you just had with that poor cashier. Look at how angry you got when that person cut you up. There's no way you're saved. But that's why we have to hold fast, not to our own testimony, but to his testimony. Amen. And finally, we're to stir up. To stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day? The day of judgment is approaching. And we are to stir one another up, encourage one another. What's the setting here for that to take place? It's the church. It's the gathered ecclesia of God. And so he says, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. But continue encouraging one another. And all the more as that day draws near. How many of you understand that day is a lot closer than it was 2,000 years ago? I'm not going to make any... Uh, I'm not going to make any kind of like statements about when I think that day's coming because the Bible tells us nobody knows. But I'll tell you this, I know it's closer than it was then. And so I'm not going to, I'm not, not going to neglect my duty now to be present, to be an encourager. Amen. Uh, to stir one another up to love and, and good service to one another in this body. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ as our high priest is to provoke us. Is to provoke us in his work, and to prove to us that we are saved because of him. And he represents us. And if he represents us, if he is our advocate, who can shipwreck your salvation? Well, you can't. He's bearing your name before the Father in heaven with his nail-pierced hands. I have a feeling that Jesus' prayers will be answered. And next time out, we're going to look at the intercession of Christ, what he actually prays for his people. We're going to look at John 17, the high priestly prayer, as it's often called. But let me just leave with this. Do you think Jesus' prayers will be answered? Do you think if he's praying on your behalf... His prayers won't be answered for you. I think that they will. I'm pretty confident in that. I'm not confident in me. I am confident in him, though. Let's stand. I'm going to invite Yvonne to come.